0: Well, welcome to the uh, second week in our series on the Psalms. Um, just a heads up, at the end of the uh, sermon, there'll be top, time for questions. So um, you can use the text number that is in the back page of the bulletin to text in your questions if you would like to discuss them afterwards. So we're in the book of Psalms, and I'm wondering if you've ever used the book of Psalms uh, as a place to turn for help when you don't quite know how to pray. Or uh, For many of us, I think the Psalms are are kind of a place for comfort in the Scriptures, like a good box of chocolates, right? Uh, Comfort is a good thing to reach out for, and the Psalms are a good place to go, but I'm wondering, is that the way that a Christian should approach the psalms like a box of chocolates. You know, We kind of open the lid and look around to find something that maybe we might like and we choose that one. Okay, if you've, if you've done that before, if you've had that approach to reading the psalms, you know that there's kind of a whole bunch of problems that come with that because while there are some very, very nice psalms, there are also some psalms that are a little problematic maybe, um, not to your taste. Um, you know, a bit of licorice hiding there under the chocolate. You know what licorice? Yeah. So we pick and choose our psalms depending upon our tastes or our particular need at the time. But when we do that, we actually focus on ourselves too much. We we're thinking about, well, what do I want? What's my need here? What what's speaking to me today? from God's word. And what that does is it means that we never actually grow beyond our own little safe comfort zone for prayer. Now if you've ever done that, and I think we probably all have at some stage or other, I sure have, we got this sneaking suspicion that this is not the right way to approach the Psalms. The chocolate box approach to the Psalms is actually a mistake. Because it throws up a whole bunch of problems that we don't know how to solve and it actually limits our growth in prayer. There is in the, in the Psalms amazing songs of praise, beautiful prayers. There are anguished cries for help in times of suffering. But there's also angry cursing. Uh, Weird stuff like this. How would you like the Psalms are are a prayer book, right? They're they're Israel's book for prayer and how to worship together. So you come across this. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you've done to us, who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. How do you cope with that? How would you pray that in the book of Psalms? How about this one? May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. These are the kind of problems that show up when Christians just kind of Pick the Psalms and uncritically adopt them as our prayers. We're just going to pray whatever's in the Psalms. okay? Now, we know that we can't do that and we know that we can't just kind of, well, I don't like these bits of the Bible, so we just won't We'll forget about them. We won't use them. But God's intentionally put them in there. They must, be, they must be useful in some way. If we find them awkward or objectionable, what are we going to do? And just so you know where I'm going, Psalm 2 is a little bit awkward this way, a little bit tricky. So as thinking Christians, we've got a question that we've got to answer first. And it's this, who are the Psalms for? I guess first of all, they are Israel's Psalms, right? They're not ours directly directly. In the Psalms, we actually hear about Israel's experiences of redemption out of Egypt, travel through the desert, occupation of the promised land, life in the land, and then exile, getting kicked out of the promised land into Babylon again. So the world of the Psalms is in its first instance, it's the world of the Old Testament people of Israel. But we also realize that as we read the Psalms, there is one figure in Israel's history who kind of dominates the Psalms, and we're talking about David, right? He is, he's both the author and he's the subject of many of the Psalms. His name appears 90 times in the whole book, mostly in those little superscriptions, that little bit in italics, just before the actual Psalm seems to start. That little superscription, that's part of the text as well. That's in the Bible too, and that's where David is mentioned often. We'll see that next week particularly. So the Psalms take us not only to the life of Israel but especially to the world and to the experience of David. There are are his prayers there, his songs, his his spirituality in a sense, his struggles. and, And it's all prayed out to God and recorded for our benefit. But. The Psalms force us to look further than David into the monarchy, into all of the kings that followed him. And we'll notice this particularly in Psalm 2 in a bit. While Israel's uh, kings in the Psalms seem like greatly exalted figures, as the narrative of all of the Psalms develop, because there is a narrative structure to the 150 Psalms that are in this book, we actually see the failure of Israel's kings and we see that there is this incredible downfall of the monarchy. And it is loudly lamented. With great tragedy, apostasy happens. And that's why the people get kicked out into exile in Babylon. So there is lament. There are tears and shame and and crying because of the failure of the monarchy who, in fact, lead to the failure of all the people. So ultimately, as the Psalms develop, we see that, wow, The monarchy was a disappointment, but, and you'll notice that the Psalms kind of finish on a big high, where they go, oh, wait a minute, our king is God himself. God rules Israel. He is our leader, and so there is great praise and many hallelujahs as you get to the back end of the book of Psalms. But you are waiting for the fulfillment of these incredible expectations that have been built around the idea of the monarchy. Well, in the Gospels, as we wind forward in the Bible, you see Jesus uh, teaching and actually understanding himself as the Anointed One that is described in the Psalms. There is great anticipation as the day of Jesus dawns. And in fact, Jesus, in his teaching, uh, he refers to the book of Psalms more than any other book. If you look at what Jesus says in the Gospels about himself and about his mission, his head is in the Psalms. He's understanding himself through that collection of Old Testament books. So the Psalms, yes, they are Israel's in the first place, and particularly David's, but we find their fulfillment in Jesus, in his life and in his experience. And then, finally, at the end of this great big long chain... Is us. The Christian prays the Psalms on Jesus' coattails, if I could put it that way. Because they are His Psalms, but we are in Him, we are with Him, we are following in His footsteps. The Christian can also enter into the world of the Psalms in Jesus' wake, as it were. Uh, they can be ours. Because they are his. And that's the kind of the framework I want us to be thinking in as we engage with the Psalms, as we learn to pray the Psalms and we sing the Psalms, as we enter into them. But we've just got to be careful because we're not Israel and we're not David and we're not Jesus. Instead, we are with Jesus, following in his wake. And so as we kind of enter into Psalm 2, which we're just about to do now, we're kind of doing that very carefully. So um, if you haven't already, make sure you've got Psalm 2 open uh, in the Bible in front of you. first thing to notice about Psalm 2 is that it is actually sort of paired together with Psalm 1. Okay? It's like a double introduction to the whole 150 Psalms in the book. Okay? And the, the clue is, um, when you go back to Psalm 1 verse 1, That word blessed is there. Blessed is the man who does not walk in step with the wicked. We heard that last week. Scan down to the last line of Psalm 2, which we're looking at now, matching bookend, hello. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So the blessing bookends hold these first two Psalms together as the introduction to the whole book. And it kind of makes a whole lot more sense now when we think back, yeah, Psalm 1, what was that about again? That's right, there was this contrasting, the two ways that you could go, right? There was the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And the challenge for us as we pondered Psalm 1 last week was, well, wait a minute, who actually qualifies as the righteous? Who's worthy? Who, who is the blessed man? Which was kind of introduced there in Psalm 1. Psalm 2, now the second part of that introduction to the whole book, starts to explore that question. Okay, Psalm 2 kind of gives us a profile. And we're introduced in verse 2 to the Lord's anointed. Ultimately, who is blessed? Who is righteous? It is the Lord's anointed and all who stand with him. So let's get into Psalm 2 now, a little more detail. Let's see how it all works. Psalm 2 has four parts. First part. It's all about the rage of the nations, verses one through three. They're kind of railing against God and his anointed. So um, I'm at verse one. I'll read it again. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So so the nations and the people. Making their plan to kind of overthrow God. They're murmuring, they're grumbling, they're agitating because they don't want to be ruled by anyone else other than themselves. And so they're kind of gathered together to take their stand against God and his anointed. That word anointed, we've used it a few times here. Um, when, it, when a new king was being set apart for God, His head would be anointed with oil. Basically, you get a canister of oil and you pour it on their head. And that's the sign, the demonstration, that this person is set apart as God's designated ruler. And so, you know, naturally our thoughts turn to King David. Um, And it's probably pretty likely that this psalm was actually sung and prayed at every successive king's Anointing, every, you know, every coronation of a new king in the people of Israel, they would probably have used this psalm with that same pattern where you know, Samuel, the prophet, anointed David, poured oil on his head to mark him out as God's chosen king. Uh, so that pattern would have continued. And so we see in this first little section where the nations are raging against God and his anointed. They are setting themselves up to say, we don't want God. We don't want him in charge of us. They're they're rebelling. They're raging. Next part of the psalm then uh, has to do in verses 4 to 6 with God's ridiculing of the nations. He laughs at their attempted rebellion. So I'm at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion my holy mountain. The power imbalance here is ridiculous. God looks on these kind of puny little nations, you know, shaking their fist at God, saying, we're going to throw off your rule. Here is the God of heaven and earth who made galaxies, gazillions of them. And there's this little blue planet called Earth, and there's these tiny little ants there shaking their fist at God, saying, yeah, we don't want to be ruled by you. What's worse, though, is that God doesn't just laugh. He rebukes the rebels, the rebels. He says, my king shall rule. That's what verse 6 means. When God speaks with this incredible, terrifying anger, I have installed my king in the place of royal power on Mount Zion. So God's saying, "That nah, this is what I've decided. Next thing that happens, uh, verses 7 through 9, we see that God's anointed one, uh, we see his rule now explained. So I'm at verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. So God's anointed king has the status of being his son. And his rule is to be absolute, to be universal. There is nothing outside of his control. And this decree that God makes cannot be changed. When God speaks, it is done. So any attempt to resist God's rule or to overthrow him, even to run away from him or ignore him, is futile. It's kind of foolish, actually. Because God is saying, no, I have established my king. And so who's the king? Who is worthy of such honour? The person who wrote this psalm, perhaps it was David, didn't actually know who that king would be, who would fulfil this incredible kind of job description that we see here. But we know because hindsight is a a wonderful luxury, isn't it? Psalm 2 intentionally kind of generates and develops this yearning a hunger, an anticipation of the one who will come and fulfill its expectation. And we kind of look down the pages of history and we know that it wasn't any of the Jewish kings. It wasn't King David, it wasn't Solomon, it wasn't any of the others. Instead, God demonstrated that Jesus was his true son. Only Jesus can fill the expectation that is created by this psalm. God's raised him from the dead. He's placed him at the center of all things. In the big picture of eternity, he's the important one. He's the one who will rule the nations, not just with absolute power, but with absolute goodness and justice and love. As we think on that, and particularly if you are very embedded in Australian culture, it's likely that you'll be feeling a bit skeptical about now. Because as Australians we say, you know what, power corrupts people, doesn't it? And absolute power corrupts people absolutely, right? We've seen it all before, we know how this ends, it ends badly. The difference here is that Jesus is absolutely good. He is holy, he is incorruptible. Power corrupts flawed human beings, but not Jesus, His government is flawless, without compromise. There is no favouritism, there is no corruption. Jesus rules for our good, for our benefit. It's the best of all possible situations you could have. Who's in power? The only one who will never be corrupted by it. It's a wonderful thing. But right now, this is not what we're experiencing, is it? For the moment... Jesus waits, not coercing and forcing people to live under his rule, but instead inviting them to live under his rule, lovingly inviting them to do so. That's where this goes, verses 10 through 12. We hear of actually a refuge that is offered to the rebels. So I'm at verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Notice how the section begins. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Here's some advice for free. This is how to live well in response to knowing God is all-powerful. And he is our creator. There is no hiding from him. Here's what you need to do. For the moment, God's rule is not being forced on anyone. Instead, God invites the people who are in rebellion against his power to change, to willingly come to him and submit to his rule. That's what it means when it says, kiss his son, verse 12. Okay? Make peace with God and with his ruler before he comes in judgment. So these verses at the end here are like a warning. Actually, it's like an ultimatum. But the point of this ultimatum is in verse 12. God wants to bring people into blessing. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. God's anointed will be for them a place of safety and of comfort and of security, if only they will live under his rule embracing his lordship and his absolute power so because this psalm is embedded in such an important place in Israel's prayer book in their in their kind of liturgy for worship we should be thinking okay we know what this is for this is for praying that's what the psalms are for how do we do it as christian people and as i suggested earlier we're not in the same place we're not in the same time or context as this psalm was written we actually know a whole bunch more. Jesus the Messiah has been revealed to us. We know that his coronation came through his cross, through his resurrection and to his ascension. Okay, So here is Jesus ruling all things and yet waiting. And we're waiting for the consummation of his rule. So how do we join in praying this psalm in a way that is Christian? Well, there's a clue for us, thankfully, in, uh, in the book of Acts, which is that narrative that we read uh, in chapter 4 of Acts, when you know Peter and John had gone to the temple, they'd healed a guy on the way uh, dramatically, and in the temple had proclaimed powerfully that Jesus was the Messiah. That is, Jesus is the anointed one of Psalm 2. They had been declaring that in the temple, and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the religious heavyweights shut them down. They said, no, you can't do that. You can't speak that way. They arrested them but they didn't really have a crime to arrest them for. So they kind of let them go again and sent them back to to the believers, to the Christians. And so when they returned, Peter and John, what do they do? They pray. And they pray Psalm 2. Uh, So let's look at that a little more carefully so we can see, okay, how do you pray Psalm 2? What would it mean to do that? And so uh, in verse 25 of Acts 4, which we read earlier, uh, we read this. Uh, This is their prayer now, right? You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Notice how they understand what Psalm 2 is. This is God's authoritative word. The scriptures are inspired by the Spirit. They carry God's authority. And then they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So they've quoted the psalm. What are they going to pray about it? Well, verse 27 Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Who did God anoint? Jesus, your holy servant. He is the one against whom the nations are raging, he is the one whose rule they reject. And who are the nations who are holding God or whom God is holding in derision? Israel's first readers, you know, would have read this and gone, you know, those Egyptians better watch out because God's going to get them. But now look what happens. As Christians pray this psalm, the conspirators are Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And Israel, as represented by the Sanhedrin, they're the guys who kind of regulated the church worship or the temple worship. Um, They're the guys who just banned Peter and John from preaching the gospel. So that whole group now, all collaborating together, they are the ones who rage against the rule of Jesus. They are the guys whom God is holding in derision. He's laughing at them. And they are the ones that God is calling, take refuge in Jesus before it's too late. Notice, this is not about nationalism at all. God doesn't just laugh at Gentile nations who pretend to live outside his power. right? He's warning every human being who imagines that they live outside of God's control, outside of his power and his authority. He's warning them. He's saying, please take refuge in Jesus. So the first Christians prayed Psalm 2 back to God. And then in verses 29 and 30, they prayed particularly that God would enable them to declare the gospel with boldness, that God would display his great power through healings and miraculous signs and wonders. God with this your incredible display of power, stamp your approval on the message of Jesus so that everybody will hear and understand what is being said. It's not about a sideshow of miracles and wonders. It's about authenticating the truth of the message about Jesus. Imagine you, Peter and John, what are you thinking as you're praying Psalm 2? Is it a, it's all about, you know, I'm being so persecuted, this is so unfair? No. Much more importantly, they are saying, wait, Jesus is the subject of Psalm 2. He is the anointed one. And the opposition that we're experiencing, it's actually opposition to his rule. It is God whom these people have a problem with. Please, Lord, enable us to speak and you, by your power, bring them to take refuge in Jesus. So the prayer of Psalm 2 is really a prayer that the gospel would be preached with great effect. But there's a second part to this as well. It's kind of like a second implication, right? If we pray Psalm 2 as Christian people, it means that we fully welcome Jesus' rule into our lives now. We're saying he is the absolute ruler over us. And every part of our lives... If if, if we're not willing to hand over every part of our life to God, we'd kind of be a bit silly to pray this prayer because we'd be praying for our own hurt and our own condemnation. We'd be foolish to do that. But when Jesus' rule is welcomed, it means we actually surrender control of our life to him. It means that we live in every part for him. So so our our priorities and our time commitments and our values and our morals and our our ethics, whatever is ours is now his because Jesus rules. We're not the centre of life anymore. He is. So what Psalm 2 does as we pray it is that all other pretended powers and authorities in this world, even us, are overthrown. Because this is God's world, where Jesus rules. And if you've never fully surrendered your life to Jesus, Psalm 2 says this would be a good time to do that. Now is a great day for that to take place. So we began this evening talking about the way that we pray the Psalms. That's what they're for. When we approach them like a box of chocolates, just picking and choosing the ones that we think that we might like, Our prayer life is probably going to just stay in a very small and narrow comfort zone. But the Psalms are a great deal more than a collection of poems to cheer us up when we're feeling down. Psalm 2 says God's anointed rules and will rule absolutely and yet he offers refuge to rebels now. So we know God and his power and we know God and his mercy and we pray that people who are currently rejecting the rule of Jesus will actually turn to Him and take refuge in Him. They'll be saved. I want to give you a kind of here's, here's an experiment you could try this week. Okay, if you would like to try out, okay, how would I, how would I, go a little further in my prayer life? What could I do? What you could do is you could take Psalm two as a beginning point. You can take any Psalm really, but you kind of we're thinking Psalm two tonight. Read that psalm carefully and break it down into its bits. And I've already done that work for us. So you've got four bits. You've got rage, ridicule, rule, and refuge. You can break down those bits. Read just that chunk and pray about that. Pray, Lord, what is it that this leads me to pray for now? Okay, make this a kind of a prayer exercise. By praying through the whole book of psalms, and that's a thing that a lot of people do, you will find that you are stretched to pray in ways that you've never prayed before. You'll be struggling with some difficult things. You'll realize, wow, the book of Psalms is not all about me. It's all about God. And I want to learn how to get on board with praying for the things that are on God's heart rather than the things that just look attractive to me. So that's a little exercise. Try it out this week if you like. And see how that stretches you in your life of prayer. I'm going to pray now. Our God and Father, we are humbled to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is your anointed one and that he rules now and he will rule absolutely in time to come. We long for that day but we pray before that day comes, please, will many people who are currently rejecting your rule turn and find comfort and refuge in you. Please have mercy. And bring many to delight in the Lord Jesus and in his perfect rule. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Stu. So we've got a few questions and a bit of time for questions. So uh, the first one is Psalm 103 verse 8 reads, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, etc., doesn't this stand in contradiction to verse 12 of Psalm 2? His wrath can flare up in a moment. Really good question. I love it when people um, have know their psalms so well that they can quote that. It's interesting, isn't it, that Psalm says he is slow to anger. It doesn't say he never gets angry. He's slow to anger. And so it actually fits quite um, on the same page as Psalm 1. God is patiently waiting for calling people, asking people, pleading with them in a sense, come to me and take refuge in me. He is slow to anger. But there is a time when judgment comes and will certainly come. And that will seem to come very suddenly. It will seem that God's anger has flared up. Oh my goodness, in in a sudden, you know, quite suddenly. But actually God has been patiently waiting for many, many years. So those two pieces of the psalms actually fit together quite beautifully. God is patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he will judge. And that day will certainly come. It's just that we don't know when it comes. And so it will seem to be suddenly for us. Brilliant. Uh, The next question is, How are the nations restrained, as described in verse 3, Let the nations break the Lord's chains, as it appears the nation's evil is unrestrained in today's context. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, verse 3, let us break their fetters and, and you know, they throw off their shackles. I think that that's referring to the, that's the way the nations think. The nations think, oh, living under God's rule is like being you know, in chains. I'm, I'm limited in my freedom and I can't do the things I really, really want to do. It's like being all chained up. That's how a person thinks who doesn't recognise actually living under God's rule is the most freeing thing ever. It's the most beautiful thing to live under his lordship. It's it's kind of quite a, a counter-intuitive thing. Um, we don't recognise when we're actually in the shackles of, say, our own addictions or our own failures or our own humanness. That's shackled. That's chained. That's stuck. Uh, and so it's the nation's feeling as though living under God's rule will be, oh, no, I'm not going to be good at all. So I think that's that's where that metaphor works there in verse 3. Excellent. One more question here. How do you take refuge in Jesus? I love that question. You take refuge in Jesus by praying and coming to him and you say, Lord Jesus, I want you to have my back. I want you to be in charge of my life. I want you to protect me on the day of wrath. When the day of judgment comes, please stand between me and the wrath so that I will be safe. That's what taking refuge means. There's this kind of crunchy old hymn that we sing sometimes, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Loosely translated, Jesus, can you stand in the way so that I'm protected by you? So that when judgment comes, it falls on you like it did on the cross. So I'm sweet. It doesn't fall on me. So taking refuge in Jesus is asking him to be in charge. So um, I would suggest pray that and do that. Maybe find a friend and tell him, hey, this is what I want to do. I'm not really sure how to do it. Can you help me?